Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So what are you supposed to do between each Engadget podcast? Wait in silence? I'm Matt Smith, and every morning I walk through the day's biggest tech stories. It's short, relevant, and ready for listening whenever you wake up. Find Engadget Morning Edition wherever you find your podcasts, or ask your smart speaker for the latest news from Engadget. What's up, Internet, and welcome back to the Engadget Podcast. I'm Senior Editor Devendra Hardwar. I'm Deputy Editor Sherlyn Lowe. Today, we're going to be diving into the ethics around AI art. Sherlyn's going to be talking about the Pixel Buds Pro, which Billy Steele reviewed for us in Gadget. That thing seems really, really cool. We're also going to be diving into the latest state of the world at Meta and uh, how things just seem very, very difficult for Facebook right now, or Meta right now. Stay tuned to the end of this episode. We'll have an interview with Joshua Stixma, Design Director at Polyarch Games, about Moss 2. And, uh, you know, what it's like to build for VR right now, uh, especially several years after the launch of the first Moss game. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. Leave us a review on iTunes and drop us an email at podcast at Engadget.com. We also do a live stream Thursday mornings around 10 a.m. Eastern on our YouTube channel. So join us for that. It's a lot of fun. So to dive into the legality and ethics around AI art, uh, we've got Daniel Cooper, who wrote that great piece for us in Engadget. Hey, Dan, how's it going? Hello, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm pretty good. How about you guys? We're doing okay. And also joining us is John Lepore, a futurist, creative leader, you know, former creative director at Perception New York City. Uh, how is it going, John? Like, you, you, you've been in this field for a while, too, or you've definitely been exploring it, right? Oh, yeah. The the whole AI art thing kind of rocked my world pretty hard uh, a few months ago, and, and I'm still kind of re- recovering and, and seeking help from, from many others in my community as we're all, you know, scrambling to make sense of it all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, it's great to have you guys. And this is a topic I've wanted to talk about for a while now. But, you know, let's take a step back because... I don't know if everybody's realized like, what's happening with Dolly and Midjourney and all these other like AI platforms or systems out there. Um, John, can you give us like a quick recap? Like what what are we talking about here? What is GAI? Sure. So uh, these new AI art generation tools have started showing up and they've they've been around lurking in the background as experiments for a while. And betas have started getting a lot more uh, general access out into the world. And so as artists are starting to play with these things, they're realizing that there is all of a sudden a totally new way of approaching the process of creating artwork. Effectively, Mm -hmm. you use one of these tools and you type in what you want to see or a, a prompt. You basically describe what kind of image you're looking for and the AI will take your, your words, will do its best to interpret them and then cross-reference that with all of the visual material that they, that particular AI has been trained on. 
and will generate a image. Usually in about like 30, 45, 60 seconds, you have mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. image that is fed back to you. Uh, and it's a pretty explosive sort of experience if you're somebody who particularly is, if if you're a creative professional who has been spending hours, days, or weeks uh, working on your own, working with teams to create imagery and content of any kind, to just to be able to type in whatever's in your imagination and all of a sudden see it perfectly rendered in front of you, like within seconds, uh, it's it's kind of uh, amazing and you know super terrifying and intimidating and and really really exciting so basically it's it's creating like very professional looking art and it could be very different things it could be like mimicking a photo it could be mimicking uh pencil work or you know water uh watercolors or something like um it can mimic anything based on a text prompt uh if you guys want a good example of this uh go check out the the show notes for this page or dan's article uh, Dan, your article shows uh, a robot um, exploding as it's painting something. Uh, what what was the prompt that delivered that image for you? Uh, I believe so. I didn't make the image. It was okay. uh, it was Aaron, um, uh, one of our, one of our colleagues. Aaron uh, But I think it was yeah. it was um, it was I think it was a robot uh, creating art and destroying itself at the same time. Ah, uh, yes. And, uh-huh. <laughs> and I, and I have to say as well, I think that that top image really speaks to the the surprising power if you don't realize that that was you know that was something that that mid journey knocked up in a couple of minutes uh and you know that that sort of central image which is sort of the the best looking of the set um you know if if i said to you that was that was the new cover of say you know a pink floyd b-sides album right, or something right, you right. know they it, it's got a real sense of sort of art and artistry and it's a very striking image and you wouldn't believe that a human hadn't had some input on that, but that was, you know, that is all AI and it's crazy. It's the sort of thing where if you walked into like a modern art gallery, right. And you're like, Ooh, what is this? What is this edgy image? Who is this artist? What are they trying to say? There's so much you can like read into it. Like even the, I think you can find the subtext of like, you know, the text that created this whole thing, but you could kind of get to that. Um, just, just pretty wild stuff. So Dan, you know, uh, I, I think what's really interesting, your piece is called uh, Is AI Art Borrowed or Stolen? And it's all, uh, is Dolly's art borrowed or stolen? Um, the thing here is that these uh, frameworks, you know, all the images and everything that these systems are built on, where do they come from? Like, what it, are these images really coming from nowhere? Or are they like based on the sources that they're eating up and? How does that like affect the legality or like you know the the ownership of the final product? Do you think that is a very big question? I'm just gonna for anyone who doesn't know, I will just say these systems. I think a lot is made of the idea of artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. What these are is essentially uh, it's a pattern recognition machine. So if you feed it a thousand pictures of landscapes, it will very quickly you know assuming they're all similar landscapes, it will assume that the blue sort of the the top third is blue and that is the sky and the the sort of lower third may be green or brown but that sort of denotes the land and very quickly it can build up an understanding of how when you say i want a landscape it has seen however many thousands of landscapes and it knows roughly what you're asking for um but obviously all of those pictures have to come from somewhere and this is really i think the the big sort of pivot upon which my article hinges 
is this idea of is it fair and legal and right that a computer can digest the sum total of human knowledge in art and then produce its own art without paying any uh, any credit any money any any consequence really there is nothing uh, to recognize the original artists whose work this is built upon and you know there are there are there are many arguments about this and the the article was already super long so i didn't have chance to go into you know the many millions of arguments about this but fundamentally it's that question of a is it morally right and that i think is is a, is a big question mark is it um is it legally right or fair and it seems to me there is we're in a big gray area now because there hasn't been case law um, really to to let to sort of set down the rules but more importantly um, I think there's a political angle whereby countries are so desperate to get to the top of the sort of the AI right, arms right. race as it were that I think uh, individual rights might get trampled on or ignored in the pursuit of making sure that you know one nation's AI stick is bigger than another nation's AI stick so there's it's a lot and the answer is there are no simple answers Sure, Lynn, is there any anything you want to add or ask before I dive in? Because I've got a lot of stuff for John to talk about, too. Not at this point, I guess. I mean, like, I, I obviously, early editions of Dolly art didn't seem that convincing or that great. But we're getting to a point where the pictures that are on Dan's article look great. And the family guy thing that we were just showing here on the live stream looked pretty awesome. It was like claymation. Can you, can you describe that? Claymation and actually, that'll, versions that'll be, of- that'll be part of the, part of the question too. Like that, that was a specific prompt too, right? So yeah, we, we will dive into that. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, it was like someone fed the prompt and I don't know if this was like where it was sourced from. I don't know if it was from our article uh, on Engadget, but it was like the prompt was family guy in some sort of style. And I actually couldn't see the words for like what it meant, what sort of style, but it looked like they were squished together. They were like claymation. It's family guy, Rockwell, painting so it's like family guy done the style of like norman rockwell and yeah we get a couple different yeah. yeah and i've played with dolly myself dolly mini i guess and it the results were not great um none of them were convincing so i've never really stopped to wonder like who owns this art who you know but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just to remind y'all last week uh our audience member mark dell made some sort of artwork featuring you really want to i'll bring really it up i'll go there we'll bring it up my okay. face morphed with Elon Musk's face using some kind of app, Mark Dell said. I actually see I see that picture framed behind Sherlyn now. She's no, like created a little stop altar for it. In lying. Her room, um so, it's horrifying. Wow. Horrifying. Uh but but you know, we gave the ugh, the picture is now on our live stream. <laughs> A picture. So, so, so that that we gave credit to Mark Dell for that picture, right? But it's also when I when I afterwards spoke with Mark a little bit about it, he was like, "Oh, but I just used an app to do it. It was not really like my art." So we are in the throes of finding out like how do we credit pictures like this? So I think it's yeah, it's the right time. It's kind <laughs> of a big thing. So John, I've been reading a lot of your coverage too. I know you've been tweeting about like a, as you've explored this stuff. It seemed uh, it seemed like it really excited you. Um, have you been thinking about the core aspect though? It was like th- this stuff isn't coming out of thin air. This is based on pre-existing art, or it's learning from something. What what is the like? Is that something you've thought about, or is that something people in the industry are thinking about uh, as 
they're looking at this technology more? Yeah, we're, we're going through, you know, this all feels so new at the moment that I'm seeing multiple waves of discussion around certain things. And about three weeks ago, a lot of it was, are we allowed to take credit for the fact that we're just writing prompts and this AI <laughs> is doing all the work on our on our behalf? Um, and there is currently a lot of discussion around the idea that, yeah, the the AI is trained on uh, potentially, and we don't know, we don't actually have clarity or documentation on what DALI has trained their AI on or what MidJourney has trained their AI on. But the expectation is that they have effectively cut it loose on the web or they have maybe curated certain things and said, hey, let's look specifically at uh, professional creatives' portfolios or let's look at stock imagery or let's look at things that are maybe a little bit uh, uh, at a higher level so that it's also not factoring in you know, children's crayon drawings or, or whatnot. And so it... I, I think there's there is reason to be concerned that like okay is Dolly just remixing other people's artwork? Now I don't know enough about what's going on under the hood of these algorithms to be totally definitive with it, but the sense that I get is that it is not sampling these images. It is not, you know, photo bashing other existing pieces. It is not copy pasting a corner of one image and a corner of another image and right, blending right. them together. It is learning from these images. It is, you know, it is understanding, you know, once it, it sees one picture of a sailboat and it's like, okay, there's like a, you know, a boat hull on the bottom and a sail on the top. And once it sees 5,000 pictures of a sailboat, it's like, okay, usually the sail is made out of this kind of material mm -hmm. and whatnot. This also kind of reminds me of like the thing we were just talking about two several episodes ago about like, is that Google AI, is Lambda actually intelligent? It kind of seems like we are getting, we're going to have to have this conversation a lot now too. It's like, is Dolly actually good at making art? You know, does Dolly understand uh, if you feed it a million images of a landscape, does it understand the beauty of a, of a blue sky and a clear meadow? Or is it just like, it's just all numbers. It's all algorithm. It's all algorithmic to it too, right? So like, that's an understanding we have to keep in mind, right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me right now, at the end of the day, my position is if you talk to any artist, any, especially anyone who's a creative professional, who like their day in day out job is creating artwork of some kind, you are always referencing other work. You're not copy pasting right. other work, right. but even in describing what do we want to do, we're going to base it a little bit on this. And that is the way all creative content is. Everything is influenced by everything that has come before. Movies would be completely different today if the the Matrix never came out, right? Uh, you know, music- It's self-inspired by so many, so many things. You know? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. And, and, you know, that everything- Everything that exists, every every piece of art, every piece of music, every recipe is in some way derivative of something else mm -hmm. that's come before. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a good comment uh, from our chat room from Declan Flynn. He says, "Isn't all art and evolution, and to some degree, inspired by from what came before?" It's basically what you're saying, John. No human creates art in a bubble unexposed to prior art, and I think that is that sure. Yes, 
absolutely. Uh, is it different with these AIs? Uh, you know, John or Dan? Like, I know Dan. Like, you've also you've written a bit of like art history into your piece too. Like, talking about like uh, I forget I forget the you brought up Warhol. You brought up like one and Duchamp. Duchamp, the the dude who bought a urinal and was just like, hey, yep. this is art. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, like, yeah, it, we have things like that, too. Does this feel different to you, to either of you, Dan or John? I think it's, uh, to to me, it's it's interesting because there's not as much of the AI making its own personal statement or sentiment that's in there, at least yet there isn't. Um, I do get a little concerned for the point when the AI is also generating its own prompts to give itself. Yes, yes, um, yes. You know, and and it, things just kind of branch out into absolute madness from there. I mean, there's, you know, I, I won't get into it right now, but there's so many scary implications that I think branch out from from this moment. I mean, I, I've known that AI has been lurking in the background. I even did some work with uh, Watson uh, and IBM years back. Oh, man. And, R- and R.I.P. Not. Watson. That was yeah. a thing that was supposed to be a big deal <laughs> yeah. and didn't end up being sure a big deal. Not, yeah, no. And- you know, and and back then, you know, me and everyone else that I knew were we were all like, well, AI may swoop in and take everyone's jobs, but it won't take ours because we're creative. And now I'm looking at it and I'm realizing no creativity is just as pattern based as anything else. Aren't our brains just pattern recognition images? I do want to talk about some of those, like, uh, you know, where where this is all headed. But Dan, like your your piece, you've talked to several people too, um, like experts in this field and legal experts. Like, do you, do you have like any direction basically from those folks about like where where we're sitting or what we should be looking out for within this field? You know. So uh, in terms of in terms of the legality and everything else, I think um, what we are likely to see is nothing happening very quickly. Right. Hey, that's um, that's normal. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, certainly uh, across the industry, there is a reticence to to start uh, to, to sort of the first one lobbing the stone is either going to spend a small fortune and not be very successful or they're going to spend a small fortune and be very successful. But probably by the time they've won, everything else is an ash heap and the whole world has moved on. Um, but I want to I, I want to talk about a concern that I have, or maybe, maybe not. I'm, it's something that's bothering me and I can't work out whether it's fair or not. Okay. So, um, Google train, Google offers up a, a framework or a, a training data set as it's called. And this is essentially a list of pictures that then other, um, AI researchers can go and, um, use, in order to train a model. And the idea is that, you know, Google's trying to kickstart AI research and it's making this stuff available. And it's done some of the legwork in order to make this this easy for people who are starting out. And one of the things that uh, a lot of AI, uh, uh, GAI, sorry, researchers and people who've been playing around with this have noticed is that... um, uh, Crayon, which is um, the project uh, formerly known as Dali Mini, uh, used to, and an open source project called Cogview, um, would very frequently generate images with the Shutterstock watermark right. across it. <laughs> That's how it and understands so, images. Like every right. every image has a Shutterstock watermark. Why not? Yeah, yeah, precisely. Because it's recognized that pattern. And so the question then is, well, why? Who's ripping off? Uh, someone has ripped off Shutterstock's public-facing database. 
And it turns out it's Google. I bet. I bet. I'll sure, choose my words sure. more carefully. Uh-huh, they, uh-huh. Have, they have chosen. Uh-huh. They, it's not allegedly, okay. but they have chosen to index around fifty-five thousand images from Shutterstock's public-facing image database that are all right. watermarked. It's it's just and, on the web. What's what's yep. preventing? You know, it's out there. Sure. Uh-huh. So, so firstly, that's against Shutterstock's terms of use, uh-huh. and secondly, uh, more pertinently, I think, is that there are there are AI art, uh, sorry, um, CGI artists, there are photographers, who, um, uh, you know, there are, there are illustrators, all of whom will have put their work onto Shutterstock in order to make a living or or make some money from their work, and this mega multi multi billion dollar corporation has said. Yeah, but actually, I'm just going to take a copy. I'm going to take the free copy of all of that work, and you're not going to see a dime, and I'm going to give it to a load of AI researchers who are then going to use it to hopefully put you out of a job. Now, that to me feels like it's a little bit problematic. I will, it's... it's it it's may new territory, illegal, yeah, yeah. But it definitely doesn't feel particularly wholesome. And this idea that it's only for, for non-profit work or only for research, well, that's fine. But also, you are sort of massively enabling piracy and yeah. then to cut out the people whose work you're going to eventually profit from when you go when you turn it into a viable business. It's funny. That, it's is, kind of, yeah. th- that is kind of like Google's MO, right? Like Google started by saying, we're just going to crawl every single page on the internet. And the value of a web page is how much it's linked to by other web pages. And then they did the same with Google Books and everything too. So, okay. Yeah, I, I kind of get it. Um, we, we, we are getting long in the segment. So I just want to ask some of the like deeper questions. Um, John, like from your perspective, you're somebody who has worked deeply in creative work, you know, creating creating things and images that a lot of people have seen and they may not even uh, have realized that. Uh, do you think these sorts of like AI art solutions could be a bad thing for artists? Like, could this be something either an artist used uses eventually to just generate an image or just anybody, like somebody can type in an image, get something that would have taken an artist, you know, a day to produce. Uh, is that a dark feature future or is this like just the, that actual outcome of where we're going? Is it like inevitable? So one of the things that I always point out when I'm talking to folks about AI art, particularly right now and with the current state of these algorithms, the best results that I am seeing are consistently coming from a very talented artists themselves because those people have a combination of a clear vision of what it is that they want to see in their end result and create. And they're also really good at articulating to the AI what they want. And when I'm talking about these talented artists using this tool, they're not saying, you know, show me a panda in an astronaut suit. Right. They have a, you know, two paragraphs of like, in the foreground, slightly out of focus is, you know, a blade of grass and behind that atmosphere fills the middle ground, which contains, you know, and it, and they get very detailed and very specific. And there's a, a degree to which working with this tool, it's very much like for creative professionals when you are a art director or a creative director and you're working with other artists and you're trying to guide those artists to certain results. And you have to give very specific and clear direction and input, but also still figure out where to leave them the leeway to interpret and improve upon uh, your, your own vision. So 
I think there's there is something interesting there that that really does stand out to me. At the same time, it seems like we are at the very tip of the iceberg and these AIs are evolving very rapidly. Um, Midjourney, uh, which is my favorite of these tools, just released their third version of their algorithm uh, this week. And I think you can some... apply for their beta easily too, right? If it's uh, yeah. yes, and uh, and it's and it's interesting. You know, right now all of the tools they're not like production ready. They're in very rare cases, unless you're open to something that has some degree of of abstraction to it. They're not going to create ready-to-go images that will be a book cover or, you know, a movie poster or or anything of that nature. But they're they're getting better really, really quickly. And the more we use them, the more they're learning what we need from them. And and I, I expect that we're going to see a dramatic increase in the quality of these tools and how they work and also how they make us, the people typing the commands, look even better at at what we're doing. And I, I, I expect that we'll get to a point where like right now artists are making the best stuff, but soon people that are artist adjacent, you know, producers and project managers will be Honestly, getting kids. Yeah. I think like, yeah. the imagination of a kid, which is completely untapped, like unlimited basically does not, <laughs> they're not broken down by the world and the limitations we put in front of them. I would toddlers and uh, young kids will probably end up creating some of the best images uh, I, we're we're going to have to wrap soon, but I, I just want to say like broadly, I think there there is something both fascinating about this uh, AI story, but also all of them that we're seeing is that the world is moving so quickly. It's kind of like reality is being reshaped in front of us and we, we don't have the tools. We don't have the laws or anything to like deal with it yet. So I find that really fascinating. Um, Sherlyn, Dan, John, anything else you guys want to uh, mention or ask uh, about this before we wrap? I mean, for, for me, it's just, you know, I hope that Anybody who's in these spaces who are interested in these tools, start playing with them, start experimenting with them, get your hands on this stuff and figure out how it's working because it's to me inevitable that it's going to start becoming a major part of any kind of process that we're doing, whether it's creating artwork in Photoshop or 3D animation or game design or composing music. These things are going to, at the very least, be this cool little servant assistant in your laboratory that helps you with with your process. If if you're an art student or a design student, this is, hey, this is your big uh, alert to probably spend some time with these things because this is going to be a big deal moving forward. So thank you. Thank you, John, for joining us. Uh, Where can we find you on the internet these days? Uh, so I'm the most present on Twitter and you can find me there at Johnny motion. Uh, I'm also working with my friends at school of motion on putting together, uh, a, a lesson specifically around AI art and how to best take advantage of it in professional workflows. And then, uh, one of my favorite things that I do is, uh, my childhood best friend and I host a podcast about formula one racing, uh, called the F (laughs) one files. And we love geeking out on on all things uh, Formula One, and we, we our most recent episode is covering the hilarious Ferrari tragedy that we saw unfold at uh, last weekend's race. So, uh, uh, join join us over there and check out what we're what we're up to. Thank you so much for inviting me over here. Always a pleasure to to chat with you, Devendra, and the whole Engadget team. 
Thank you, John. And uh, Dan, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, nowhere. Nowhere <laughs> anymore. No, yeah. Please tweet. Please tweet more. I had to I had to tweet Dan's article, uh, you know, on my own because Daniel Cooper is not on Twitter. And uh, turn, turns out you have to promote your stuff if you want people to read it, you know? So, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll come back just for you. I haven't tweeted since. I think I tweeted once since 2019. But I saw. Come back just I saw. I was like, oh, boy. I got I to gotta throw some light to the story. So anyway, uh, <laughs> Thank you. is it Daniel W. Cooper on, uh, it is, on Twitter? Yes. Yes, it is. All right. Follow Dan. Follow his work at Engadget. Thank you, Dan and John. Uh, and uh, hope to chat with you guys again soon about this and you know, other, other cool AI things. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everyone. Shortly after we recorded our episode... Adam Masseri, the head of Instagram, announced that he'd be actually rolling back a lot of the changes we end up discussing in this episode. Specifically, Instagram said they're, they're going to stop testing a full screen version of the app, um, and they're also going to start reducing the amount of recommendations people see, according to Casey Newton at his newsletter, Platformer. While Masseri seems pretty clear that these changes are just temporary, it's a sign that he and Meta are listening to a lot of the complaints that we're going to be talking about in this episode. So, yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on all this, but here's our original discussion. All right, let's move on to some other news. And uh, I guess a lot of the news is what what the hell is happening over at Meta? Because things seem pretty rough. Uh, earlier this week, the head of Instagram, uh, Adam Mosseri, posted this uh, really weird video where he was like trying to talk to the community, talk about how things are going at Instagram, just, just trying to be lovey. And everything he was saying just sounded like Instagram as you know it is dead. A photo-focused social network uh, that's giving you a feed of images from your fans. For, forget it. That's not what we're about anymore. And that is actually the main complaint so many people have had. Um, share, share as like a, you know, as somebody who loves to post Insta. many a selfie <laughs> on Insta. Um, what did you think about this? Like, were you disappointed or did it just feel like, yeah, th- this is inevitable? I was out. So I was chilling. I was not listening to any yeah, of that you were noise. But well, uh, so, so. Are you yeah. are you annoyed about like where Instagram is now? Yes. Because I feel like that's the complaint I hear from everybody. Like the feeds are a mess because so much of it is like recommended AI garbage from other people. They're trying to be TikTok yep. when they're not TikTok. Yep. And to me, that's infuriating. How does it make you feel right now? I, I do the thing where like you the second they start yeah. to show me things that I don't want to see, I like sh- shut down the app. I'm just like done, yeah, bye. Yeah. And I'm still a person. You, that you can also you can also say don't show me messages like this, and for 30 days it will try to or, or take snooze, out recommended. Snooze suggested yeah. posts right you can like new suggested stop posts, showing yeah. your suggested posts for 30 days and i keep doing that and they just keep mm-hmm. because they want you to keep scrolling i'm like all right if i'm done seeing the stuff <sighs> that from people i follow yeah. i'm done with your app i'm out stop showing me <laughs> shit and if i want to see stuff that i am you know not following i can go into discover by myself and i do spend a fair amount of time in discover sometimes because like that's how i discover shit that i actually want to buy uh every now and then so i don't know yeah, I do. I do. Uh, some. I, I am one of those very susceptible mm-hmm. to Instagram shopping people, but it is what it is. I mean, uh-huh. it, you know, Instagram I, I do feel bad is a real when, thing. I feel bad when something I bought beforehand ends up being like a trending Instagram ad. I'm like, oh, no, is that well, is everything the, is, is. Yeah. Does it know? Does it know what I what my tastes are? I don't know. Every, everything is Instagram yeah. now, but I will say, yeah, I mean, the, the homepage, the feed itself is kind of going like it's it's 
people are not going to spend a lot of time on that anymore. Like grid posts, just not going to make sense anymore. But stories, I feel like the way stories is still laid out, still feels like mm-hmm. it's okay. And reels, reels yes. is yeah. kind of the big thing. Reels is their big like TikTok competitor. So basically, um, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben is pointing out in your chats, like you, you talk about using Instagram to look for things you may want to buy. It is sort of like a digital shopping mall too. Like it's this little this little thing of just like pretty pictures, cool ads. Oh, this looks cool. It is if the entire internet is just like I don't know an open cesspool. Uh, Instagram is still like this nice little corner where you could go in and see some nice brands and some photos and stuff. I kind of I still share photos because that's the way my family and some of my friends get to see baby pictures, and it goes straight to Facebook. And I never want to touch Facebook directly, um, but. You know, as something I sit and actually spend time in, it is a disaster. Whereas my daughter and I, I've talked about this, like we spend time in TikTok because like it is, it's a very good feedback loop of things you want to see from people I don't know. Uh, but it's, it the AI, I guess for TikTok, the algorithm is much, much better. Um, but okay, so that's Instagram. Mm-hmm. Also, not a great week for, for Meta in general. They just uh, announced their latest quarterly earning reports. They announced their very, for the first time ever, their revenue, uh, their revenue shrank. Uh, since they went public in like 2010, I believe. Um, yeah, profits dropped by, uh, what was it, 36%. So again, not great. Reality Labs, their experimental AR, VR division, uh, accounted for a $2.8 billion loss in this quarter. This is the division, by the way, that should be like spearheading like where Meta is going if they really want to be a metaverse company. Last year, that division lost $10 billion. So you know, that's that's a lot of money just going down the drain. And we've seen a lot of stories about Zuckerberg just talking to people being like, okay, it's time to hunker down. If you're either in, you're out. Yeah, you're either on board with all the meta stuff we're doing um, or you or, or you just, uh, you know, leave. Broadly, like, Sherlyn, like, what do you what do you think about, like, where meta is now as a company? Because it does seem like they're focusing less on being a social networking company, right? They're They're trying to be the metaverse company, but also... There are so many roadblocks ahead for them. Yeah. Meta is and always has been and always will be whatever the fuck Mark Zuckerberg wants it to be. And that's where he's interested right now is to spend all of that money on this metaverse thing. Uh, I don't know if it is a flash in the pan. I don't know if like it'll take off. I do think that, you know, they've managed to influence a lot of, you know, different parts of the industry to to jump on board this like bandwagon that they're they've hitched to themselves and they're the mules carrying it forward now. So I'm just like, all right, good luck. I understand why you're bleeding money. Um, yeah. because it takes and sometimes a lot. you have to, exactly. to like, yeah, build exactly. the future. Sure. Snap was mm-hmm. the way a lot of tech companies lose a lot of money before everything. they start making Uber, anything. Yeah. Everything. Exactly. Yeah. And they're still losing money, a lot of them, but you know, revenue is big. They have a lot of influence. They have a lot of power. Uh, Meta has the luxury of already having a lot of that. And so it still kind of can't afford to do that. It's ads business is still huge. So uh, where they are right now, I it doesn't feel like Zuckerberg cares about Instagram or Facebook anymore. Right. So it feels right, like right. the people it's- who are actually running those parts of the business... What are who's who's the inspiration? What are what is their vision yeah. for that stuff? They, Copy they feel TikTok like the, to death? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they're they're the the guy in the basement in Spirited Away who's trying to like run all the stuff at the steam bath, but has no clue about like 
Uh, sure. What, what, what is, what is the point? What is the point of Instagram? What is Instagram? What are we doing? Um, so basically I think it seems like meta is in like a really vulnerable state right now where they're getting attacked at all sides. Uh, I'm sure, uh, Zuckerberg, uh, has majority shares in the company, so he can kind of do whatever he wants, but I'm sure the board is not happy and other people. And then, then more, co- like more, um, like, uh, basically more challenges ahead because the FTC yesterday announced that they are filing an antitrust suit against Meta to block their, uh, acquisition of Within Unlimited. Um, that's a VR reality app. They're the creators of the workout app Supernatural. Within also has, like, it does a collection of VR experiences that you can jump onto. That didn't seem like a pretty, it didn't seem like a big deal. That seemed like, oh, that, that was a small company Meta is buying. So it is wild to me that uh, the FTC is like really trying to put a stop to this and the Microsoft, um, you know, Activision Blizzard deal, which is billions and tens of billions of dollars, huge, huge, um, seems to be going ahead without, uh, you know, without much, uh, much of an issue. And uh, it's just wild. So this is Lena Khan, the FTC uh, commissioner, uh, I believe that that is the title, but uh, Lena Khan's like first major action that she's doing, uh, you know, at the FTC. And uh, in an interview in the New York Times, the New York Times, um, you know, said, uh, can you can your work really reign in tech, which often outpaces rulemaking and policy? And I think this is the key of this decision here from Lena Khan. She says, a lot of the work that we've done has really broadened the aperture for how we're understanding and recognizing and diagnosing harm. Harm also seems like a key word. We're really trying to be forward-looking, anticipating problems and taking swift action rather than just, you know, 10 years down the line realizing, oh, there was a big problem and a big moment that we missed. So it seems like the FTC is now trying to stop uh, an acquisition that could potentially uh, kill competition, but also maybe give Facebook uh, meta um, an unfair advantage. I feel like if Lena Khan and like the current FTC structure was in place when the Oculus deal happened, I feel like they would have been like, no, 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 that that cannot happen um because i i kind of like i commiserated i was very sad about meta buying it because it was like i kind of liked what oculus was doing as a standalone company it seemed like yeah they were blazing new territory and we didn't want facebook to kind of own this whole space and uh now now look where we are like facebook kind of has they don't have a monopoly but they certainly have like a big piece of the pie and uh you know they've poured money into oculus but even the oculus side of the business is uh is facing issues like I believe they just raised the prices of the Quest 2 because business is hard like it's tough to be selling anything right now so yeah this is I I'm just fascinated by this and to see like how the FTC is going to try to stop things um I also remember I was reporting um I'm sure you were following this too like when Facebook bought Instagram for a billion dollars that was like world shattering because here was a tiny little app uh, that had like, I think 20 employees at the time, like not that many employees. And re- I was used to writing about acquisitions like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Microsoft, uh, Google, something's buying a company for 10, $50 million, yada, yada, yada. A billion dollars was such a like earthquake of a move. And it kind of set the tone for the rest of the industry too. Cause like billion dollars kind of became the unicorn standard for so many other companies too. I, yeah, it seems the FTC is being like, no, 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 we don't want this to happen. We don't want the uh, the old telecom barons to to kind of be rebuilt, which is what seems to be happening. Do you have any other broader thoughts on this, Sherlyn? It's just wild to me that we're kind of seeing pushback right I, now I, on something like this. 
I think it's really interesting. I think that they've learned and they're doing this hard reverse in the other direction. They've learned that these big deals in the past, they were too lax on, like you said. Um, not only just the Instagram purchase, but the WhatsApp purchase too, right? And they were trying to what, retroactively yep. Yep. dismantle that. $19 that was, billion dollars for WhatsApp, oh, yeah. That was hilarious that they wanted to go backwards and, and, and <laughs> you know, undo it. They're like, oh, can mm -hmm. I, am I past the window to undo this? But now they're like, I guess we got to preemptively. <laughs> can, I, can I return this transaction? Right, exactly. Um, look at my Amazon here. Yeah. And, uh, I've used oh. it. I've unwrapped the packaging. No, yeah. um, but but no, now they're like, no, can we, let's, let's stop this early. And honestly, I don't have the foresight to be like, Supernatural is going to be the whole thing like this huge company because who knew with Instagram when it was so small that but it would become they're as big definitely as it did. one of the better they're they one are. of the better VR studios like I will we, tell when yeah. we went to events we would always see within stuff and it was like okay that's interesting right yeah. I was about to say that which is that like within is one of the companies we used to like interview a lot we work with them a lot and supernatural I tested it out before they were even bought by um Facebook or meta and you know but it was a one, th like you don't think of one little game studio being bought by, let's say, Xbox as a big thing. But it's this is exactly what's happening, right? The platform maker it has bought the studio, the content producer. And is that? Yeah. <laughs> has it happened before? <laughs> Have we seen this? You know, I like, hmm, okay, yeah. It's kind of interesting just taking a pushback because my my thing is like how do we, how do we stop Facebook? You know, a company with what over two billion users at this point, more power than many many countries and many governments. Like it kind of seem unstoppable as a as an entity. Uh, my thing has always been like more regulations and like just being smarter about like how we allow these companies to behave. This seems like the beginning of something interesting, but I don't. We don't know. We don't know what this lawsuit is going to lead to. Uh, it is just really interesting to see, to see the FTC push back. Um, you brought up a couple other stories too, Charlene, about Meta. Is there anything you want to call out? Because there's just so much going on right now. Uh, yeah, I think there is. I feel like, like you said, there is like a moment in time right now for Meta. It almost feels like we just all kind of have to watch. I think in part because it's earnings season. We're learning a lot about Meta. Um, but, you you know. I think we touched on all the important things. There are a lot of yeah. things like, uh, you know, involving the oversight board, whether, you know, with Meta asking the oversight board whether it should be sure, softening sure. the... They're committing another $150 million to the oversight board, which seems, okay, good. They want more self-regulation. But there was also stories about Meta asking the oversight board, like you were saying, to soften COVID-19 misinformation policies, which I... What? Yeah. Okay. I guess misinformation is okay right now because it is kind of hurting their uh, their bottom line or something. Like I'm sure it's like preventing certain ads that Facebook wants to allow I, on their platform. Yeah, yeah. I also saw too that like um, some f influencers or people on Instagram uh, keep complaining about being so called shadow banned. Um, and also, uh, I, you know, some people pointed me to certain profiles where like if you try to follow them, Instagram throws up a notice saying like oh, this activity is prevented because of like, you know, we want to protect our user behavior. And like one of the people apparently that this was happening to was, and I loathe saying this, but it was Joe Rogan, right? Joe Rogan was saying that you can't follow him on Instagram. It's just it's like a weird play. Like why, I feel like Instagram hasn't outrightly said why it's doing this. Um, so yeah, no, it feels like they're trying to like get away with a lot. Um, but speaking of getting away with a lot, Meta is also... Shutting down its Tuned app. Hey, did you know Meta had an app called Tuned? Aha, uh -huh, yeah, because no, you probably aren't a Facebook user as Is part of a couple. Is that T-O-O-N-E-D or no, T -U -N -E -D? no, 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 T-U-N-E-D. Yeah, T-U-N-E-D. It's not and the it's, app that turns you into a cartoon. Okay. No, it's the app that uh, so-called gives couples or partners a 
private space where you can share feelings, love notes, challenges, and music streams. So you know, a lot of couple apps out there do the same thing, but Facebook has its had its own, and it's shutting it down in September. Cool. Uh, what will happen to Facebook dating? Is that next? I don't know. That's a thing. I I, I don't know. I, Facebook I, dating I is a whole thing that nobody uses. I I hope. I don't know. Blah. Okay, okay. We will be paying attention to whatever is happening to Meta, uh, but yeah, the it feels like we're starting to see the the giant like facing some real challenges right now. So it's very interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. Okay, enough of Meta. I don't want to be talking about them anymore. Pixel Buds Pro. These are you know Google's new earbuds. I know you're very excited about them, Sherlyn. Uh, Billy Steele reviewed them for us. You could go read his review over at Engadget, but. What's uh what's up with these? Like why are they so good and interesting? I have been dying for new Pixel Buds because the original and the second gen and the A series, there's so those are the, you know, versions of Pixel Buds out there right now. Um they they all were like kind of good and then would have little issues that really like forced me to use AirPods instead, which as ah. longtime listeners will know how much that hurts me to say. But so they also don't well AirPods or AirPods Pro. 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 So so yeah, no ANC Pro. as well. Pro is the way to right. go. Yeah. So so yeah, the the Google's Pixel Buds Pro are I believe the first ones to do uh, active noise cancellation, uh, and they're just two hundred dollars. So that's like twenty dollars more than the Pixel Buds second generation. But you get a lot more with it. You're currently going to get uh, additional like ANC, uh, longer battery life, plus. Uh, not yet available on the Buds Pro, but coming is support for spatial audio. Um, and I, I had a set along with Billy while he was writing his review. So I was helping him kind of test out some features. Oh my gosh. I've, I don't think I've heard better bass on a pair of true wireless earbuds. Granted, I haven't tried uh -huh, any of the uh -huh. Sony ones out, but the, the like, the Sony ones are pretty big. And also the Beats Fit Pro are really, really like have a really nice sign profile. So I don't know if you tried. Those. I haven't tried either of those. I should if I'm going to be making more claims like this. But but at least for me on my experience with the more mainstream uh, wireless earbuds like AirPods and uh, Pixel Buds and Galaxy Buds, uh, these have really impressive base. And it's all through like software tuning too, because I received them and I immediately ran a software update. Billy couldn't run his software update immediately. And so he wasn't noticing the improvements in base when paired to an iPhone that I saw when I was paired to a Pixel. So it's like a software update, driver update situation that brought out a lot of the, like, the audio improvements. Um, you also get back with the Pixel Buds Pro uh, touch controls for volume adjustment. So because Google used to have them on the initial um, buds. Then with the A series and Gen 2, they took away the ability to like swipe up and down to change your volume. But now with the Pro, you can. And I don't know if it's because like they just wanted to give you an extra bonus feature for paying more money or if that's like physically they couldn't do it in the cheaper versions. Um, and then you can also use a long press to toggle between ANC and transparency or regular sound modes, which is nice. So I like... A lot of it. I will say, though, one of my biggest frustrations with Pixel Buds in the past has always been their connectivity. Sometimes they just cut out. Sometimes one bud will cut out. Sometimes they just don't charge. I haven't encountered a lot of these issues yet so far. Uh, Billy and I both did find that like fast pairing is actually a little slow um, with the Buds Pro. And it's also 
for me, sometimes it just like remains connected to the phone, even if they're in their case and like the case is shut. Huh. Yeah, which is that's annoying. it's annoying. It yeah. forces me to have to turn off Bluetooth, which ugh, I guess it's like a bad or good thing. I don't really know. And then Billy finds that like when he opens the buds and takes them out of the case, it takes a little too long to reconnect to the phone. Oh, that's his that's experience. Yeah. So I'm just like, well. Uh-huh. Is he Android or iPhone? He's testing it with a Pixel that uh, Google provided as well. So, you know, like I get it with an iPhone maybe, but no, this is a Pixel experience. Come on. So there's still some issues it looks like that Google needs to work on with connectivity. Uh, I I think though the sound experience is great. The ANC was effective. Like I don't hear my AC over it. I was like standing right next to a giant turbine in front of like a power generating system and I didn't really hear anything either. <laughs> okay. It was pretty great. Um, Did you break into a power plant or no, something? No, I just like walked by one all the what? time, like, look, you know, just daring it. So I don't know. Okay. <laughs> just daring it. That's actually your ANC test. That's actually not a bad I test know. if you have a giant noise making thing. Um, it sounds like Google's basically catching up with a lot of things Apple and other companies have been doing, uh, Samsung and um, who else? Sony. Like too, we've, we've talked about Sony. Um, I really like the Beats Fit Pro because those were a really great balance of uh, comfort, sound quality. They sound excellent. They have good bass and the ANC is really good. Um, how How is the sound quality? Too? Yeah. Like you, you talked about the bass. Is it clearer? Oh is it gosh. like more authentic sounding? It's full. It like I almost could mm-hmm. feel the beat in my ear like that like it's mm-hmm. almost like that's right yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. good you almost can feel like a membrane right and I think that that was great for me I was listening to a lot of bass heavy sounds um, songs and then the other thing uh, just like a fun anecdote for y'all I guess uh, when I was I think two nights ago I finally got a friend to send me the full length videos of me and former Engadget staffer Chris Velasco performing Defying Gravity. Uh, one karaoke night. Uh, and <laughs> I know, yeah. I know. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I was first listening to the, the video or watching the video with the sound on a phone through the phone speakers. Right? I was listening to it first on an iPhone 12, which had shitty, shitty sound. Right. And I was like, ugh, my voice sounds awful on this. Then I started playing the video on my Pixel 6 Pro. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't, my voice didn't crack. It was that speaker. Then I popped in the Pixel Buds Pro and I was like, oh, I'm Mariah. Like, it's like, (laughs) it was good, but not just that. It wasn't just like that you can hear Uh the voice uh better. It was also the way I could hear people in the background and the direction that they were talking from. Like, um, when we were. So it's probably bigger drivers. Yes. Like bigger speaker drivers in there. You got more of an environment, like an ambient experience. You got the environmental sounds in there that make you that you can tell that it's my voice coming through the mic in the room as opposed to like just pumping out voice on the phone speakers. Granted, that was a comparison between phone speakers and earbuds. Yeah. It's no, always going to no. be gotta different. You got to try real speakers. Yeah. yeah. So I got to try real speakers. I got to try like earbuds versus earbuds. I will say I did side-by-side comparisons with the AirPods Pro in terms of sound myself just to see. And I, I still think the Google's Pixel Buds Pro have better sound quality. Like the... Mm-hmm. AirPods Pro, like, are fine. Yeah. Like, really good. But they cannot touch, like, what Sony's yeah. doing. Or even what the Beats Fit Pro are doing. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that's not hard. For $200, yeah. you're getting really, like, in my opinion, decent sound quality. Like, nothing... I don't think anything that, like, rivals the likes of Sony or Beats, right? But good. Better than Apple, at least. Uh, and then you get very good I assistant mean, yeah. features and touch controls. Mm-hmm. 
I keep forgetting AirPods Pro are still $249 after they came out in 2019. They're often on sale, but folks, folks, if you if you want a better like Apple thing, the Beats Fit Pro are the way to go. They just have a chintzier case. Like they don't they don't feel really good. Um, but also those those don't have wireless charging. I'm I'm glad you're liking this, Sherlyn. You mentioned spatial audio. Yes. Does that is that just the Android spatial audio, or can it work with the iPhone stuff? I too? believe it should only be for spatial uh, for for Android yeah, phones. Makes sense. Um, yeah, because it's because yeah. you need the Apple chip probably for their their spatial audio. Yeah, it will be for uh, compatible Pixel phones, but we don't really have a lot of the details right now. Um, I will say, I there is also another feature that's coming, which is audio switching, which Apple already offers. Right, like you switch. Oh, God, so good. Yeah, yeah, so it's good. very yeah. important, and uh, I we I haven't tried it out yet because i haven't been switching between different android devices just yet um but i i mean it should be a good feature if you have multiple android devices at home the another thing i wanted to shout out is battery life google promises seven hours of listening time with anc on all the time and then you know 11 with it without anc and mm-hmm. and in our test are they comfortable by the yeah, way they are like that that was my i other felt question. like there was nothing in my ear i mean it depends right? everyone's ears are different for me uh without any tips at all i could my right ear hole the right earbud fit my ear well but the left one like i needed to finagle a little bit more to get it to sit perfectly but i went on a like a head banging spree and it was still like it still sat firmly in my head it didn't fall out. you may you may need different uh bud sizes in your ears like to be honest that's what i need like i need medium in one side and large in the other this also brings to mind i think logitech announced um a new pair like their 400 earbuds uh which have the mold so you can, like uh, mold yep, it yep. to your ear and get like a perfect fit, and that that to me seems hardcore. Um, but yeah, very cool. I'm glad you're digging these. Anything else you want to mention about the, the Pixel Buds Pro? I mean, just check out our full review. Uh, Billy did a good job of comparing them to the other the competition, the AirPods Pro and the Galaxy Buds as well. So if you have any questions at all, go check out the review. Let's move on to some other news, and we're just going to run down stuff real quick here because this is a super packed episode. But I want to mention Grand Theft Auto Six. There were some details that kind of leaked out, and I don't know if you care about this at all, Sherlyn, but uh, there. Okay, so I'll just <laughs> I'll just say this: there was a Bloomberg story by uh, Jason Schreier, who is very good at getting like um you know uh, leaks and uh, you know digging deep for reporting. Um, you should read his piece because his piece uh, is called "Rockstar Games Cleaned Up Its Frat Boy Culture and Grand Theft Auto 2. That's over at Bloomberg. So it's broadly about the the culture change at Rockstar, but it also has some news bits, including the fact that Grand Theft Auto 6 is currently in the works. Um, will likely will include the first playable female lead character that right, Rockstar right, has ever right. had in yes. the franchise. Um, they're saying she's going to be a Latina woman who's part of like a Bonnie and Clyde duo, duo of mm-hmm. some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like it's going to be set back in Miami. And they may, uh, that was like Vice City too, which is where I spent a lot of time with Grand Theft Auto. Um, and it also seems like uh, they can be adding locations and maps over time too, because this is going to be a very, very big game with a lot more indoor uh, places and experiences like than they've had before. Also seems like it's at least two years away. So don't uh, don't get super excited for this yet. But I thought that was interesting just to have some details. Um, I do remember when Grand Theft Auto V came out, I was like, huh, so it's just three dudes, huh? That's what we're doing? <laughs> we're just, we're doing this again? And I like the game. I like the game just fine. Um, but yeah, Rockstar has been criticized for basically not portraying women well or when it does like they're either strippers or like um you know really really annoying wives or something so that's not great uh 
I like Rockstar's writing at times, and I think they can be good. So hopefully, you know, hopefully they're going to get better at that. Um, in other gaming news, the PlayStation VR 2, uh, Sony has given us some details. It's going to have live streaming support and a cinematic mode, uh, which could be helpful for, for Twitch streamers and YouTubers. Um, seems like uh, it's also, yeah, the cinematic mode is similar to what they did in the first PSVR. It's going to give you a 1080p way to play games, which aren't VR games, just on like a flat screen in the VR headset up to 120 hertz, which could be, that could be interesting if you don't have a fast refresh rate uh, TV or monitor to play with. So that's something. I, I'm just more interested in like, what is, what is the PSVR going to be looking like at this point? Um, I mean, we see the basic design. We see the controllers that looks cool. We don't know pricing. We don't know exact availability yet, but it seems like with the Quest 2 getting more expensive and Meta, like Meta on the ropes, um, it seems like there there's a big gateway for, play, for Sony to just come in and be like, hey, here's PSVR 2. It's cheaper. If you have a PS5, it's it's easy. It's one cable. You plug it in. You have access to all these cool experiences. So, I yeah, I, I don't know what, what it's going to be, but we're hopefully going to learn more soon. I think probably this fall. It's going to be really, really interesting. In other quick news, uh, Spotify announced that their car thing player is no longer a thing, which uh, honestly isn't too surprising to me. Like, car thing was this... It was this, it was like a semi smartphone. It was a touchscreen interface that you could clip onto your air vents for older cars to give you Spotify controls, and it like uh, it synced up with your phone. So if you had an old car, if you didn't have CarPlay or something, like sure, yeah, I guess it would be cool. Um, but it sounds like the current uh, you could still buy it now. It's fifty dollars, uh, kind of discounted. Used to be ninety. But the current yeah. in- used to be ninety. The current environment where things are just like really it's hard to build things. Uh, people are not buying things. We are preparing for a likely recession. Uh, just seems like it is not a great place to be building hardware. So, you know, uh, so I think you pointed out or Ben pointed out that they didn't even give it a proper name. I, I think I, it's, I think car thing is that. a proper I think that's name. a great name. I, that yeah. is a great name. I think it's an awesome that name. That is a great name. So, no, exactly. it's a good name. Uh, <laughs> Better than Galaxy S22. Wow, you, you're... Tell, tell me about the Galaxy S22. Man, your Segway game. All right. Uh, <laughs> this week, <laughs> Samsung unveiled a... Better than any of Samsung's phone names. <laughs> Samsung A... Don't even what? get me. You want me to call Sony oh. up in here? Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, Samsung uh, unveiled this week a new shade of purple for the Galaxy S22. The color this time around is called Bora Purple. Bora is the Korean word for purple. Um, and just to remind y'all, the Galaxy S22 series already exists in a violet shade. So this is not that much different. Uh, I would just encourage you to read our article on Engadget because the press release that Samsung put out to introduce this new color it sounded like they were high on something when they wrote that press release because it's containing maybe like, that's why maybe maybe well, that's you, why you know a human has to write the press release too so uh, I feel like I saw this news and I was like who cares why why well, why are you doing this Samsung I'm sure the person who whose job it is to hype that up is like oh hell Look, I don't care about just, any of this let's, let me just let's quickly read to you what Samsung uh-huh. wrote in its statement y'all decide whether someone a machine mm-hmm. or, uh, a human or AI wrote this game take purple? a CBD drop and just like write up this press release let please. me go let me yeah. go purple is for everyone whether you're a global pop sensation someone with a playful sense of style or a teen who wants to stand out from the crowd in that sense the purple stands for the same things as Samsung Galaxy Embracing diversity, pushing boundaries, and relentlessly innovating under the philosophy of openness. 
And then adds on, with its pastel and neutral tones, Bora Purple embodies optimism and a sense of calm. It will unfold your world with the power of choice. You don't need to be a K-pop star or a mythical creature to embody mystery or power. You just need to be yourself. I will just tell you that I do not feel like I embody mystery or power, even though I am not a mythical I mean, creature. I feel like that that is a thing that could sell you in a product, Hulin, so I don't know. But uh, I will say it's not just some random PR person. Uh, it was uh, Samsung's executive vice president and head of marketing, Stephanie Choi, who, who came up with these words. So... Well, you know, no, no, it was like someone wrote it for yeah. her and attached the name to it. Let's put it out. Let's just say oh. this. Let's just someone definitely like. Are you wrote saying this for executives them. don't say the things? That I are I know some. I, I know what happens. Anyhow, speaking of people who are feeling a little hurt, I think uh, we've got a Filipino politician who wants to make ghosting a criminal offense. Uh. This is is that turning people into ghosts? Like what, no, what, what is do you happening? not know ghosting? Have you never been? Ghosted? I know, I know ghosting. Come I know ghosting. On. I'm gonna. Ghost I, I have you right never now. been ghosted. Well, actually, no, <laughs> no. I've definitely been ghosted by Sherlyn at some points when we. Fair we've, enough. Mm, Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. I ghost people yep. quite a bit. Um. So this is yep. um. A member of the Philippine House of Representatives, Arnofo Tevez Jr., uh, put you know put out a bill, uh, and there's a note accompanying this bill that said. Ghosting can be likened to a form of emotional cruelty and should be punished as an emotional offense. Wow. Wow. I mean... Way, way to publicize your L's. Dude. Right? <laughs> I feel like that's it. <laughs> Look, I, do I think ghosting... Nobody's getting back to me. Yeah. What's up? Do we feel like maybe we should just deal with our personal emotional problems? Do we allow people to set boundaries? Like, what's... Anyway... Probably another episode. Uh, maybe my own personal talk show will go into this. And then finally, something else that made us all sad this week, the Choco Taco, something I had never heard of before this week, by the way, mm. is going mm-hmm, away. Mm-hmm. Devendra, tell us what this is about, please. I barely know. The Choco Taco is one of, one of the like uh, Klondike companies. Yes. Uh, it, it's, it's a chocolate taco thing. It has like uh, the ice cream cone wafer, but shaped like a taco has vanilla ice cream and like a chocolate covering over it. I think the only reason we're talking about this is because Alexis Ohanian, um, you know, a co-founder of Reddit and current like VC dude, uh, Sit, told Ian yeah. Lever like he, he wants to buy the rights to chocolate taco and keep it from melting away from future generations childhood um, if you're alexis ohanian sure i don't yeah, i don't think you could do we were only talking about this because of alexis ohanian i think everybody was kind of shooken in their feelings before he even and he, and he probably I, was one i don't of think i've ever had this so i've never yeah. had this but now i all i do want is one like all i want Just, is a you can go get it you can go get it it's right. it's right there. All right, yeah. all right. I'm about to go buy one. All right. So anyway, that was. A- I, I think this is <laughs> this is a thing for kids who would often get ice cream from the ice cream trucks or had bodegas or something nearby. Like yeah, yeah, it's something you could just find at the store. My parents would never get me <laughs> anything from the ice cream truck. So it's like there's a whole bunch of that stuff where I'm like I I don't know. Never, it seems fine. Yeah. I'd love to try it at some point. Uh, I I like the core Klondike bar. Klondike is fine. All right. Go to your bodega. You are in a city. I know. I will. That has corner stores and bodegas. Just go. Yeah. Find the Choco Taco. They're probably going to be raising the prices now, so you better hurry up before scarcity like does its work. Let's move on to some listener questions. Do you want to read some of these yeah. here? Because I've been talking yeah. for a bit. And you don't have to read the whole thing. Yeah. Like, feel free I'm going like, to summarize. Yeah. yeah. So we got two uh, listener questions this week. One from Thomas from Madison, Wisconsin, about the iPhone XR. Uh, you you know listened to our episode on the Pixel 6a. You are in the market for a mid-range phone currently on the iPhone XR, but you 
you've read somewhere that Apple may stop supporting it in the next year or so. Um, and, you know, basically you're asking for advice on what phone to get, right? Uh, uh, Thomas said that they're pretty basic. You, you know, mostly use your phone for low demand things, podcasts, music, maps, maybe photos and videos sometimes. Um, so should you select from what's available now or wait for a bit? And is it easier to just stick with Apple or is it worth your while to look at the Pixel or other devices? Um, man, you're like a tough person to answer the question for because you don't have like these strong feelings and strong requirements. Yeah. Um, and in that case, I would say do not switch platforms because do if you don't care enough to like, hey, I'm interested in Google's computing photography and some right. of Android features. If you don't care, do not move because that path will only lead to headaches. Yeah. I, say. For, I mean, yeah. I think it was the first step for you is to decide what your priorities are in terms of use case, in terms of like, the, the your must-haves, right? So do you want, like, you must have a phone that lasts all day? Like, battery life is top concern for you um, because it sounds like you don't really care that much about photos looking amazing. You don't need to play a lot of games, so processor is not that important for you. Um, so, like, I, I would say as a, just a general advice thing, make a list of, like, things you need your phone to do. Then it helps you kind of narrow down your choices. Mm -hmm, um, yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I already sent um, Thomas uh, an email too, like with my basic thoughts. But the thing is like we are, it is currently the end of July. It's basically August. And you know, Apple announces new iPhone stuff in September. So if, if you guys are in the markets for phones and your phones are working, just uh, hold on to them. Hold on to them and wait to see what is happening in September. Wait to see whatever else Google's announcing. Even if you're getting a mid-range phone, everything else will kind of like drive down right, in price. Right. So the older generation with the yeah. iPhone 10R. Mm -hmm. You don't need you probably don't need an iPhone 14, but this fall you'll probably have a good deal on like an iPhone 12 that will be great. Like that that's kind of the way to go. Like at this point I'm looking at phones like I look at uh used cars or something. A lot of times it doesn't make sense to buy new. Uh it gets devalued so quickly. So that's my thing. Do you have a specific device or, or do you agree with that? I, I mean I agree with you. I really like the Pixel mid-range series. Um I think it's nice. Yeah. yeah, Android is so nice, but I also have different priorities. My priority is like a good camera. So uh I I wouldn't have the right advice for someone that's like looking for something different. So there you go. Um, moving on to the other question we received this week from Wesley, uh, Wesley said, uh, that he heard our discussion around AI, Google's Lambda AI being sentient or not. Uh, and though you agree with everyone about this not being actual sentience or sentience as the Americans pronounce it, um, it seemed like you, you, you felt like most discussions didn't really dig into how to test for AI sentience, uh, and if it actually happened, how would we know it happened? And how would we know to not just blow it off as being part of an algorithmic design? Um, and, you know, many physicists already believe that it might be possible that our universe is predetermined uh, and our brains are just electrical impulses reacting to stimuli, just like the world reacts to the stimuli it gets from the sun. How would we tackle determining if a piece of software is in fact sentient in the future, especially as AI and machine learning methods advance? It just it's just right like it, it, we don't know we don't we know do, we don't know we don't know is the short yeah. answer it, we're yeah. we're not the experts for this either like the, the scientists in charge of like determining the stuff are just like i bleh. 
maybe maybe we'll see one day i've talked to a couple of people and it's like yeah we don't have the testing for it um what? i think the main thing is we yeah go ahead i was gonna say wesley that like part of our discussion in the episode um, that you listened to too was how we both acknowledged that like we as people don't even know what it means to be conscious and how to transfer our own consciousness to other planes or, or forms too so like how do we know if some other being is conscious or not, right? Sorry, Devendra, you were saying. It's it's tough. Well, the, the main qualification we brought up in that episode is that everything Lambda was doing was based on a prompt, right? It was answering questions input based output. on prompts. Yes. And at that point, input output. At that point, it's like, okay, well... Yeah, it can read millions of lines of text and come up with a he vaguely human, uh, you know, response. Uh, Google's the the Gmail auto response thing. I think Google has admitted like they they've you know they have billions of messages they could look at to see how a human replies to a certain type of thing. Um, if Lambda and if an AI was just like out doing its thing, like doing its own thing with no prompting, um, at that point, like wants to learn, is asking interesting questions, has a self-awareness about itself, like at that point, maybe the line will be so thin that we just can't say, okay, you're, you're probably a conscious being at that point. There will still always be the question of their programming, right, what exactly. is driving them exactly. and our relationship to that. That's always going to be there. That's always there with humans too. Like we, we don't know. Nature and nurture is still a, a thing we're still like trying to come to terms with. So I love living in a world where we don't know everything basically like, and I love like exploring these gray areas and it's going to get more interesting. I will That's say, all I, can say. I will yeah. say to answer Wesley's question. Also, we've got a few, uh, live chat audience members, uh, chiming in with their own suggested sentience tests. For example, Mark Dell says, I've seen the episode of, uh, Star Trek TNG. I know how to test for sentience and buddy 305 love says I have a test. Ask the AI if it's self-aware. Ah, I feel like this is not. I nope, personally don't think that nope. that's the test. But they if have the text story, to respond to that. Yeah, they yeah. they already have been trained to answer that question, so I'm not sure if that's the actual test. But uh, you know, people are you know people have ideas. So I hope that Wesley, even if we don't have an answer for you, you you feel like people are thinking about it. So there you go. Mm -hmm. I feel like the the Blade Runner test was my first uh, idea. You know, the first time I was like uh, came into a test for specific like human consciousness or something. So and that's that's how that movie opens and something that's always come to mind. So I, it could end up being something like that, like exploring a being's ideas and philosophies. And maybe that will tell us something. So anyway, this was a really good question. Yes. I like having both of these questions. Yes. So please send us more podcast at Engadget.com. I know Sherlyn really wants to do like a uh, a self-help podcast, yeah. you know, or a, <laughs> give me all your help podcast. So all your inner thoughts. We, can, we can answer yeah. all your questions. Uh, make sure there's a tech angle, please. Yes. But, you know, otherwise, I'm sure like Sherlyn can use it for her TikTok show eventually. Also that, yeah. Let's move on to what we've been working on, and I have a review of Dell's XPS 13 Plus going up uh, basically the day this podcast is going up. It's going up this week. Um, I am a little confused by this computer because it is both very, very beautiful. We've talked about it before during CES. This is the one that is the more powerful XPS 13. Uh, it has the keyboard that stretches from edge to edge. It has the trackpad that's like underneath the wrist rest. Um, it looks really cool. It looks like I'm stepping into the future or something using this thing, and then I start using it and I'm just like, I don't like this. I mm. don't like a lot of this. I don't, the reason why even Apple, which could easily, I think, make a seamless trackpad if they wanted, 
But on every Mac, even the new MacBook Air, you have a large trackpad area, which is covered in glass, and then you have the wrist rest, which is covered in the metal of the rest of the case. That separation tells you a lot. It tells you of like, oh, I'm I'm in trackpad zone. I can zip around here, not do anything. You don't have that at all in the XPS, and I found that really, really frustrating. Um, just like swiping around, I have a vague sense my fingers in the middle, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes I'm swiping towards something. I reach the edge. I can't tell. Um, so I'm sure if I was using this thing for a month, maybe I would get used to it. But here's the thing, Dell. If you're telling me this is like the future of computing. I, I shouldn't have to get used to it. This is a very simple usability thing. And you could see it coming from a mile away. When we were sitting down talking to Dell executives, for like it was the first thing I brought up. And they were like, we tested different things and we think like people will get used to it. And I'm like, every time you say that, don't, like don't. Like that is bad usability. That's bad for customers and bad for users in general. So that part annoys me. The keyboard is fine. It also has a capacitive function row, which is okay, but is not bright enough to see outside sometimes. Like the brightness on that gets weird. It gets washed out. So I didn't like that part. Um, beyond that though, like it is perfectly fine, but it is funny that I just came off of reviewing the MacBook Air. You know, the new MacBook Air, which uh, yes, will be the last perfect to use <laughs> I use in a headline for a long while. But that thing is just like, it is a really nice MacBook Air. It's it's not trying to do any of this stuff. And it still has a headphone jack. Freaking Dell doesn't have a headphone jack in the XPS 13 Plus or the new XPS 13. So points docked for that. Um, no excuse if Apple can put it in and you can't Dell. So I, yeah, my reviews can be going up. Um, not a not a like very bad review, but certainly a frustrating one. What's up with you, Cher? Um, it is earnings season. I've got Apple's earnings later today to cover, and we are ramping up to hot gadget fall. I guess I don't know. Um, but there's briefings and meetings that are happening in town, and we're going to go see all of this cool new fun stuff. Which means. You will be seeing my face again all over in Gadget, I guess. I've been able to hide um, from from being on, on I don't know, video for a bit. But uh, I guess I'm going to be back to work. They're going to be put me back to work again. So, Elsewhere on Engadget, our other co-workers have been hard at work. Nate Ingram published a guide to smart speakers. Uh, so if you're in the market, you can use his guide to help you buy one. We've also got Steve Dent uh, with his guide on the best projectors you can buy, plus how to choose one, which is great. I know a lot of people are interested in that. Um, and then finally, head on over to the Engadget TikTok because some of our other coworkers, you know, put in a lot of effort to making some of these videos out there. I mean, we're, Terrence O'Brien, our managing editor, apparently is just like in TikTok famous now. He loves it. He loves He's it. He's so yeah, good at it. Great. I can't do TikTok. Uh -huh. I mean, I guess I could. I just don't have... You what are you talking about? What? I just don't think What are you I'm, TikToking about, Trillin? I know. <laughs> TikToking about. Ha, funny. I just don't think uh -huh. I'm a I don't think I'm good for TikTok. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe I'll start my own NLF. Wow. Who knows? Wow. I'm starting You're my own like, TikTok. You found a you found a social network that's broken you. Um <laughs> Yeah, you do have to use TikTok a little different and it is it is like a random you know bunch of things, but uh, yeah, I, I kind of want to start doing stuff too. Um, like I want, I have a rant about the XPS 13 probably won't be on the Engadget TikTok, but I'll probably just do something for me. Cause I'm surrounded by just stuff gear around me. And I feel like some nerds, some nerds would like that. And I don't have time for full video production. So that's a thing. So yeah, cool. Thank you, Sherlyn. Let's move on to our Engadget picks for the week. What do you got? I, a while back, I watched this film called Incantation. It's on Netflix. It's a Taiwanese horror movie. 
Um, I've heard of this, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like Blair Witch style where it's a mix of found foot. It's actually all found footage. Um, and the the story I thought was very interesting. And I'm always a big fan of like Asian horror films. Um, so this was good. I, I, I wish it had a bit more bite, but man, the story was was scary. It was like, it had a twist ending. It had all of that going for you. So everything you want, everything yeah. you want. I know it's not quite spooky season yet, but Hey, if you're ready to be spooked a little early, this is a, this was a good ride. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of the beginning. It's of about to season. be like, this is the time it's about to be like, I'm going to talk about Nope, Ooh, the latest Jordan Peele yes. movie. And I loved it. And I, I can only say so many things. Uh, I, I can say judging from the trailers, it looks like this is a you know a UFO movie, like a UFO uh, abduction type of movie, and it is that and so many other things. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say specifics, but I will say I love it. Uh, if you can safely see it in the theater and you feel okay doing that, it is worth doing because this is a big screen movie. This is Jordan Peele, who I love. I I, I love Get Out. I loved Us. Mm, too. I loved I loved, Us. Like how weird and inscrutable and like unclear like us was not very specific about what it was trying to say and i kind of love that too because it feels like jordan peele just took all the clout he had after making get out and was like i can do whatever i want i don't have to make a traditional like i don't have to make a thing that you're used to i can uh, you know uh really just like uh make something i want to make and i feel that i love that i felt that a lot in us i really feel a lot, a lot about that and nope this movie evokes uh you know big spielberg epics but also invokes like freaking neon genesis evangelion you know evokes akira at times i'm like oh man i i can't help but love this Uh i i get your references your references are my references i love it so much so check out nope if you can and uh, you may not like it like here's the thing it's not the movie you expect and i think that's okay i love living in that feeling of being surprised by a filmmaker especially when his talent is jordan peele I've also been watching the rehearsal on HBO yeah. Max, and this is Nathan Fielder's yeah. new show, which I think you should watch, Sherlyn, yeah, because it is it is wild. Yeah. It is a wild exploration of human drama. <laughs> this is Nathan Fielder coming back, um, you know, after Nathan for You, which was like a great, fun, unique Comedy Central show. He's producing uh, How to with John Wilson, which is one of my favorite like shows on HBO right now. That's just like a guy walking around New York and like coming up with ideas about New York. The rehearsal is full on Synecdoche, New York, the Charlie Kaufman movie. It is about people who want to rehearse a specific thing they want to do in life. And Nathan Fielder does everything in his power to help them do that, including building an exact replica of the the place they're going to be rehearsing, like hiring actors to help them have these conversations. It is something, rehearsing a situation is something people with anxiety do. Yeah. Something I do I quite do, a bit yeah. too, especially, yeah. In my head, you do it, you over prepare, and over. You yeah. mentally prepare. Yeah. Over and over, like a, yeah. What a great Until concept. it drives us mad. Yeah. It's a great concept, but also this show is a full exploration of like how that there are limits to that, you know, like sometimes you can't rehearse everything. You cannot prepare for everything in life. And this show is that I think I think you would love it, but also make sure you get to the second episode, which is one of the wildest things I've seen on TV. Um, it introduces a main character to our world that everybody's talking about now, and he's one of the most infuriating people I've ever seen on television. So I think for the drama and the reality TV-ness of it, uh, and just the insanity of it, I think you'll really appreciate it, Trillin. If you guys like Nathan Fielder's work, I think this is worth watching, so check out the rehearsal on HBO Max. And I think we're good to go. Well, that's it for the episode this week, everyone. Thank you, as always, for listening. Our theme music is by game composer Dale North. 
Our outro music is by our very own Terence O'Brien. This podcast is produced by Ben Elman. You can find Devendra online at at Devendra on Twitter and at the Filmcast podcast at thefilmcast.com. If you want to send me places where I can go buy a Choco Taco, you can send them to me on Twitter. I am at Sherlyn Lowe. Email us your thoughts at podcast.engadget.com. Leave us a review, please, on iTunes. And subscribe on anything that gets podcasts. Here's my chat with Joshua Stixma, Design Director of Polyarch Games, about Moss 2. This is a game that came out several months ago uh, on PlayStation VR, but it turns out uh, a lot of people do not have that thing still hooked up, especially since it's hard to connect to the PlayStation 5. So just recently, Polyarch brought it over to the Quest 2 and now, uh, you know, brings it to a much larger audience and you don't have to be connected to a console to play it. I really liked Moss 1. I thought it was one of the best examples of like the, you know, uh, mid-generation. It it was after the launch of all the other headsets. But it was a good example of what you could do with VR um, for a simple platformer. You play as a mouse with a sword adventuring through, uh, you know, a set of dioramas. It's not a traditional VR sort of view, but I found it really endearing. It's sort of like a mix between Zelda and Astro's Playroom, that really popular game on PlayStation VR. We chat about what makes Moss 2 different from the first game and the state of virtual reality development, which, uh, you know, has kind of slowed down a bit, but it does seem like Polyar Games is still pushing for it. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us on the Engadget podcast. Pleasure to be here. All right. So uh, I was telling you before we started recording, uh, I have a close relationship to Moss. Uh, it was the I think my favorite thing I saw at one of the first E3s I attended, and that was like 2017. You guys were in a small room in the back when we were going to physical places. But I saw Moss, and it was the my favorite thing I saw in PSVR. Uh, you guys seem to have had Thank a you. really successful launch, too. So, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, seems like the launch went well for you guys. You're preparing for Moss uh, for the second chapter. Uh, what is going into the sequel here? You know, it, it seems like you you guys are kind of the rare VR success because I've talked to a lot of developers who wish they had sold more or wish like more people were buying headsets. You guys seem to be at a really good nexus of, you know, platforms where you were on PSVR super successful there you were on oculus um first of all what was that experience like and then yeah let us know how uh how it was uh jumping into chapter two yeah i mean it's been a really great experience we you kind of highlighted the success we feel really fortunate that we're able to get this game together as a team or just a small team of 15 developers for moss book one so we were tiny we we got the game out and you know, the reception had just been great. Uh, We love that players were connecting with not just the world we created, but with Quill, the the main character of the game. And that bond that you form with her in the journey, I think is something that a lot of players really connected with. And with the power of virtual reality, you're really able to feel like you're inside of that world. You're really like at times feeling like that character is actually there and reacting to you. And I, I think that's what we realized was a lot of the power behind the game and what people were were really forming a strong connection with. And I mean, just hearing all the people's the players' feedback that we that we get coming in, and whether it's reviews or whether it is just people sending us really kind, thoughtful emails to our to our email address, is just just overwhelming 
with the amount of positivity that we're getting from players with the direction that we went for the first game and, and the things that we felt that were really important that people resonated with. And that was just, that was a great experience. And when we looked at what we wanted to do for book two, how do we continue this? When you get that kind of feedback and that kind of response, you don't want to change things up too much. And our approach was, okay, we have something here. We have something that is working. What can we do that says, this is kind of foundational for us. We we, we know that we love this immersive world. We love these characters that feel real. How do we keep that going? And when we looked at Moss 2, we said, that's the foundation. We're going to build upon that. We now, we we want to see what can we do to make new worlds that players can experience, new fresh content, new characters that they can interact and bond with, new interactions. Uh, a big thing for us is physical, real interactions that that feel weighted and feel measured. So you could, you know really legitimately feel that that is a real object that you're moving in the world. Can you give us a sense of like the the new sort of interactions you're talking about? Yeah. So uh, it's a mix of new interactions of not just with Quill, but with the world. So we have new big devices that it'll be moving around in the space, uh, new ways of moving devices. One easy call out is we didn't do anything with like pendulums and kind of gravity weighted stuff. So trying to merge a little bit more unique interactions that we hadn't experienced before we also really like in terms of the player ability set just a bit more additional texture we have um, the player gains the ability through the through the game to be able to actually paint on walls using their controller essentially using their hand and it just feels like a very cool and unique interaction and we and very organic and we want to as a studio continue to try and on those different areas because virtual reality is so new there's a lot of room to explore and that what that means for us is there could be some potentially amazing interactions that we could happen upon by just trying to build out this world and imagine what is going to feel good with a controller what is going to feel good in terms of the player moving their hand around and then also learning what's going to feel bad sometimes Holding your hand up for a long time not is great. not a yeah. great thing because your arm's <laughs> going to get tired, right? So, you know, with VR still being new, it's a lot of us exploring what those are and imagining from a player perspective what's going to be a comfortable interaction. Um, one of the other interactions that I, that I just love and I think is really, um, really working well for players in terms of building that connection with our character, but also feeling like great interaction is just reaching in and charging her weapon. One of the other things we really learned was a success and that players reacted strongly to was the ability to charge Quill's sword in the Twilight Garden expansion that we released for the first book. And we wanted to build upon that for the second game as well. So she gets new weapons throughout the game and those weapons have unique charging mechanics. They're all slightly different, not just with what they do, but how you charge them. And just adding some of those unique textures to the game or things that we think are, are avenues to just improve the overall VR experience and have you feel immersed in the world. You're not just doing the same input over and over and over again. You have to think like, what is, how should I interact with this and what is the right way to do it? Gotcha. I mean, you guys were also, you were building Moss, um, I think early on in this current VR landscape. So Mm -hmm. for, I guess the PC headsets were out, you were building for PSVR at the time, but clearly 
the tech has changed behind them a lot now too. We're expecting a lot of new tech and the new PSVR like eye tracking. Is there anything you guys could talk about in terms of like what you're taking advantage of with the new tech and new headsets? Yeah, um, I don't know if I can talk about anything specifically other than my excitement mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for these features and the, the things that are possible with them that I'm excited that we can do with it. Uh, we haven't announced anything that we're doing for any any new headsets yet, but uh, you mentioned eye tracking. I'm very, very excited for that. Um, there's a few things that come to mind that I immediately get very, very excited about. The The top one would be... Um, being able to track where the player is looking is is such a powerful input to give response for a virtual reality game. In most cases, and certainly this is on all the headsets that we've developed for thus far without eye tracking, we're simulating where they're looking based on their head position. But we know absolutely that that can be completely separate from where their eyes are looking. And it becomes much more effective, like just imagining like a a future world where I can like glance at Quill with my eyes without moving my head. And if I do that for a long time, she's like, looks back at you. And it's like, why are you looking at me? Or like reacts in those interesting ways or, you know, building up even potentially puzzles or interesting interactions that actually use your eye as an input. There's all of these cool things that are possible. And then of course, the next thing that I'm excited about with the eye tracking is just unlocking foveated rendering because that allows us to really push graphical limits a lot further. But the you know eye tracking is fantastic. I'm really excited about that. I'm excited about um, you know Cambria is they're kind of hinting at the things that are going to be out with that. And obviously, improved technology is great. I'm excited about every single tidbit. Like Meta is announcing everything that you know Apple might at some point start talking about a little bit more. Everything that Sony's been talking about. There's you know, face tracking is now going to be another thing. And that's just inter- another interesting input, like what kind of expressions a player making. And if you have games that, you know, what Polyarch is really focused on characters and character reaction. And it's not just them having believable reactions, but also reacting to what you are doing. And in a world where Will could see that once again hypothetical where Quill could see you frowning or smiling and react in an interesting way that makes you feel like that character is more real. Um, that could be cool. That could be any character in virtual virtual reality world. That is powerful technology. That is that is something where I'm I'm very excited to see where developers take this over the next few years once that is out. Since you guys launched, there have been many many other VR games and people pushing it. You know, all the way. Um, I still think about, you know, playing Half-Life Alex and how that experience felt so transformative. It is a little weird because I, I tell people this game was amazing and they're like, oh, yeah, I'll check it out someday. Th- there is like a gap between people actually accessing VR and wanting to leap into these experiences. Have you guys taken any inspiration, you know, from the the bigger VR games like Half-Life Alex? And are you thinking at all about actually trying to push people to get into VR? Like, is there... I'm not sure how to put it, but it seems like there is a disconnect between the people who want to try VR and the broader set of gamers. Like, are you guys doing anything to push people more into VR to check out Moss too? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when you look at just hitting on the first question, the the bigger games that are coming out are absolutely, you know, inspiring for us. We see the potential of what larger teams can do. We see uh, like new, just explorations every single time a new studio tries VR, they're trying it with a slightly different 
you know, lens of how they would approach it. And you can learn from how they're doing their interactions. You can learn from how they're doing their characters and how they're feeling real. So for us, it's just, it's absolutely great to see these studios doing VR and, and we can see the landscape is changing. We're seeing more and more and more studios are now starting to to get into VR because they can kind of start to see we had a little bit of like initial VR boost. Everybody's excited. And then there's that lull that we yeah, were in yeah. for a little bit, right? And it was it was gearing down. But now with the big like really big players with meta now seeing and finding that success with the Meta Quest 2, I mean you you look at the numbers and it's like 15 million plus headsets out there that's starting to get comparable to consoles in terms of numbers i think somebody was saying the ps5 is around like 20 million or something around that and you start to gauge that and and where where's the velocity which which platform is growing and for all we know that could number could be a lot higher by the time we get to the next holidays so the the companies creating the hardware are absolutely trending towards something that is more accessible and more mainstream for people to adopt and accept this hardware and then start being able to play it. And I think that is one thing that we are definitely appreciative of in terms of people being able to play Moss and get into the game. And that's kind of on the hardware side, them doing their part. Let's make it accessible. That's one of the the biggest things that we are, are excited about at Polyarch for the future is the accessibility of VR. These headsets are now becoming, you know, no wires. Um, it's standalone. I don't need to buy a, a super powerful PC to experience VR. Uh, I could link my, my, you know, my Quest headset to my PC and play something on Steam and get all the power. But also, if I don't have that, there's, a, you know, a plentiful library of games that I can play on the Quest 2. And that's really accessible for people. The size of the hardware is getting smaller, lighter to have on your head. We can see that happening. When looking at the new developments that Meta has posted with their new headsets, they just did that, like, was it a few weeks ago, I think? Uh, Mark Zuckerberg was showing off the new headsets and they're making them smaller. They're making them more form factor. They're getting in the, the pancake lenses so they can really make them smaller, but also weigh a lot less. And you start combining that form factor with the accessibility of, I can just go into any room in my house, put my headset on and play it. I can like lie in bed and watch Netflix if I want on my VR headset. It's beyond games. It's just making it more accessible for everybody. I think that's going to be a big thing for people adopting VR hardware. And then regarding what Moss and what Polyarch might do, I think Staying the course for what our, you know, our big, one of our studio pillars is for VR, which is comfort. Yep. Mm -hmm. We try to be very conscious about the comfort of our game. We see Moss as a franchise that is a potential your first VR game kind of experience where we're easing people in. We never move the camera for you to cause any motion sickness. Uh, we want to bring you through a multiple hour experience enjoying lush grand environments around you and interacting with a 3d character that feels real that reacts to you as you go on this great grand adventure together we want to make sure that players feel very comfortable in the game and that the interactions feel intuitive that we stay as far away from anything that could make anyone feel uncomfortable in the headset as much as possible and that that's going to be that's just going to continue to be our goal going forward and that's how we hope to contribute to get people into VR and is 
basically if somebody puts a headset on and they're playing moss we want them to like when they take that headset off say that was great i want to do more of this gotcha we want to create games and experiences that have people have that i know a lot of vr developers are are really worried about the comfort aspect of things but it is, it is pretty wild to see um you know there, there are stories now about the the guy who's doing the weird vr hacks for like elden ring and uh, other games like games are not not at all mm-hmm. meant for yeah. vr like breaking all the rules are you is there anything that you guys have learned over the last few years in terms of like maybe where you're playing it more conservative where you're pushing things forward or is it still very much um try to try to replicate what made moss one work yeah the foundation of moss one it was it was strong it worked really well we we built it all around dioramas yeah yeah. you're this big character and you're just tinkering with the diorama putting your hand in moving your characters around we really love that feel for the second game we we did want to do a little bit more um and as far as we stretched for this this game where we spent some time exploring what about like larger dioramas could i be in different sections of that diorama and still have an understanding of this larger this larger picture around me but I can still get in there and have those physical close interactions because that's so important for the game and the overall mechanics. So we have quite a plethora of areas that just feel larger. We want to make sure that the areas feel more connected and that you can move through them in a comfortable way. Um, for, for those not familiar with it, you know, Quill goes from the screen left to right, right to left, but we always do kind of a fade out to black and then fade back in when we are moving the camera because we always we find that that is one of the single most um, the thickness inducing moments in a game when the camera moves for you so we try our best to do that behind the scenes it's almost like we're in a stage play we turn out the lights have you move and then turn the lights back on and the new scene is there for you to experience and even with these larger areas we're still doing that um, just because Every time we do try to venture in that, we still haven't yet found just like the perfect sweet spot to move it. And there may not be one because one of the other things that we've learned is every single player reacts to these things differently. Yeah. And sometimes it's a matter of how comfortable are they with virtual reality? Have they been doing it a while? Has Have they become accustomed to it? The other is some people just through their bodies just won't be able to get accustomed to it or just on like kind of a different level. And those are things to keep in mind when you're developing for virtual reality. How is this going to affect players with this headset on? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It seems like uh, you guys have the ultimate thing to worry about because it used to be worrying about epilepsy for flashing lights and stuff. And now it's like you get motion sick in the VR game. You could you could be knocked out for a day. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen it get real bad for people. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And with Mossbook 2, we're targeting a game that's much longer than the first one about double in length in terms of people being in the in the game in the headset so we we want to really make sure that they feel good either doing multiple sessions in a day or saying like oh i gotta put the headset down but i can't wait to get back in tomorrow i feel really good feel refreshed so it's it's a big thing for us and there in the, the possible future where the games keep getting longer and having more meat to them and we're, we, we've totally moved away from the 15 minute 20 minute tech demo of vr now we're here for these longer experiences that players can engage with so we need to be solving those problems for them to allow them to do it excellent well thank you so much joshua is there anything else you want to mention around moss book two coming up well i i mean i I guess we said it before but it's coming out on uh, the 21st of july on meta quest 2 and it's available now on the playstation vr we're really excited for 
players to pick up the game and dive back in the world and bond with Quill in Moss Book 2. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.